a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move. Down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting, and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business by talking to sportscasters from all over the country and beyond. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe on the podcast app of your choice and share the podcast on your favorite social media outlet. It's been another slow week in my broadcasting world, but there is light at the end of the tunnel finally, so that's nice. In Minnesota, sports are allowed to practice starting on January 4th, so they are underway right now as of this recording on January 7th, and we will start competitions again on January 14th, at which time it will be fast and furious with games three or four times per week. So it will be busy, it'll be much more along the way that I am used to it being this time of year. I did pick up another side gig just through a... A random connection, the power of networking. Uh, One of my old bosses called about a sales idea that I was mulling over for my streaming business. And in that conversation, we figured out that he had a job opening to do a streaming tournament in Council Bluffs, which is about 30 minutes from my hometown in Nebraska. And I said, you know what? I'm considering going down there anyway. If you're going to pay me to do it, I'll definitely go. And that's how it happened. So I'm going to be doing eight games in two days at the Mid-America Center in Council Bluffs, Iowa, while getting a chance to uh, see my family for the first time in quite some time. So uh, that's really all that's going on. I want to keep this intro short, and we'll move on to the podcast, because this is a really good one. Uh, I was able to chat with Pete Pranica. He is the TV voice of the Memphis Grizzlies. It had a lot of good stories and good advice. That's enough from me. We'll move on to the interview with Pete. And Pete, how are you doing today? Uh, everything is fine. Just uh, working our way through the NBA season and just trying to stay uh, as safe and healthy as we possibly can. I want to start in probably a little bit of an untraditional place for this podcast, but reading up about your preparation process you have a specific, you have it down to a specific pen that you use to write. <laughs> and I want to know, what is it about this pen? And tell me about the trial and error process to figure out that this was the one pen to rule them all. <laughs> well, uh, before I went to an automated uh, program to do my game boards, I would I would write out all the information by hand with different colored pens. Red was for the last game. Uh, green was for the season stats. Uh, you know, purple was for league rankings. But the issue is, you know, when you're doing as many back-to-backs as we were doing maybe six or seven years ago, um, you would be doing a lot of your work on the plane just to get it done in time. And uh, the pressurization in airplanes does some really funky things to pens uh, where they start leaking all over your hands. And so you might be writing out, uh, you know, somebody's season stats and all of a sudden, you, you know, your, your index finger is all green and it's not easy to wash off. And so 
Uh, I just love being around office supply stores and stationery stores. And I found uh, La Pen. And uh, it's nice because it has a very, very fine tip. You, it comes in a myriad of colors. And it doesn't leak on airplanes. So uh, I never have to worry about opening up my, my pen bag uh, mid-flight. And, you know, there's a big blue uh, splotch on the outside of the bag. And all the other pens are covered in, in blue ink or something like that. So uh, that to, the, the fact that they don't leak on airplanes is probably as big as anything else. And a lot of really unique colors. It's, it's uh, above, you know, blue, black, red, and green. Uh, they have a couple of shades of purple, a couple of different shades of red. And when you're trying to match colors to the different color schemes of the different NBA teams, uh, that comes in handy. How did you find the La Pen? Was it recommended to you by another broadcaster? Did you just happen to be using one on an airplane and say, this is nice? Uh, how was the process of discovering? Because I've, I've just never put one ounce of thought into the pen I use. <laughs> um, I believe... And I, I correct me. Well, I, I you can't correct me if I'm wrong because you, you wouldn't know. I'm telling you. Uh, <laughs> I think that I walked into a stationery store that I know the owner, and I I said, uh, you know, I use a lot of different colored pens, and I'm here, I'm really having some issues. And she said, why don't you try this? And I bought a couple La pens, and uh, they they were fantastic. So uh, yeah, go to uh, Paper Source if you have a Paper Source uh, wherever you. You know, our listeners may be that's that's a good place to find it, and and better stationery stores will uh, will have them as well. All right, I'm sure that is exactly what our audience <laughs> was here for was for stationery recommendations and pen use. But uh, I really did find that quite interesting that you had uh, were that specific in your preparation as what pen you used. But we'll get more into the traditional uh, topics that we cover here on Say the Damn Score, and I like to find out the point. In each broadcaster's life, whether it was early or you were a late bloomer, whenever it happened for you, when you first thought, you know what, hey, I kind of want to be a sports broadcaster. Well, growing up in rural Wisconsin, where the nearest neighbor might have been like a mile down the road, uh, and being uh, the only boy in the family, I have one sibling, a sister, uh, you know, you'd go in the backyard and you would you would make up your own games and... Uh, <laughs> My mom would laugh, you know, I've never seen passes to themselves. I mean, that was, that was pretty much what I had to do as a kid and put a hoop up in the backyard. And, you know, like I think every other young kid, you, you pretend that you're hitting the the last second game winning shot. Um, and also living out that far out in the country. I mean, your only connection to major league sports. I grew up, uh, about 12 miles north of Green Bay. Uh, so, I mean, I, obviously I was in touch with the Packers and would go to a, a Packer game periodically, but the NBA, uh, you know, Milwaukee, uh, the major league baseball, the Brewers, I mean, those, those were two hours away and it really wasn't something that was accessible to me as, as a kid. So you'd listen to Jim Irwin who did both, uh, the Packers and the Bucks along with the Wisconsin Badgers. You'd listen to him, uh, on the radio, uh, you know, because we're talking when I was growing up, we're talking late seventies. And so there is no cable television and a lot of NBA games are not on TV except maybe on Sunday afternoon and the Bucks not being a big market team weren't on all that often. Um, so th- that was part of it. Uh, also realizing that I'm five, eight and I'm not terribly athletic that, uh, excelling in sports as a participant was not something that was going to be in my future. Uh, and then the high school that I attended, 
is was named at the time Premontre High School. It was a boys-only high school since it has since gone co-ed and changed its name. It's also the same high school that Kevin Harlan attended. And this high school had a 10-watt radio station. And uh, Kevin is five years older than I am, so he went through uh, the process. And then I followed him where WGBP-FM, 90.1 on your dial, which sadly no longer exists, um, it, was a, it was a training ground for us. Uh, if your academics were in good standing uh, during your study hall, you could spend the 50 minutes of whichever period you had free spinning records in, in the radio station during the day. And then those of us who were interested in sports casting, uh, we could try our hand at that. And we did everything. We engineered our own uh, broadcasts. We called uh, you know, Wisconsin Bell for the phone lines. Uh, we, we did all that. We raised money for underwriting. Uh, in order that we could fund the phone lines. Uh, and then we called football and basketball and hockey for the school. And uh, so that was that was really where it's like, wow, this is this is really fun. This is a way for me to stay involved in sports and in athletics, because, as I said, you know, I'm not I'm not going to be a football player, certainly or a basketball player. Uh, I, I like to bowl. I like to play golf, uh, you know, play a little tennis. But but in order to stay connected to the world of sports, announcing was going to be the only way that I was really going to going to be able to do that. Going to the same high school as Kevin Harlan, and as you said, you were five years apart, so my guess is you at least knew of each other in a small school. Uh, was there a relationship there? Did you realize the type of talent you were following at that time? Uh, what was the, the connection between the two of you, or was there not much of one? Well, physically, we weren't we weren't in the school at the same time. I was um, his brother Brian's a couple of years older than I am, so I knew Brian. Um, and I think you know you knew the Harlan name in Green Bay. I did not have a relationship with Kevin until uh, I was a freshman at Notre Dame in 1982, and Kevin had just graduated from the University of Kansas and had gotten the job as the Kansas City Kings radio announcer straight out of college, and. I remember I was in my dorm room at Notre Dame and a letter comes in from my mother and it's a press clipping from the Green Bay Press Gazette that Kevin Harlan, uh, you know, one of the very, very few to go directly from college into a, a professional play by play job. And I thought, wow, I, you know, we went to the same high school. We weren't there at the same time. I don't know him, but, you know, maybe I could figure out a way to get in touch with him and chat with him because I aspired to do what he was doing. And to give you an idea of how different the world was in 1982, um, I called the Green Bay Packers and I introduced <laughs> myself and I said, you know, I'm a student at Notre Dame. Uh, I went to Premontra High School with the Harlan boys. Um, could you possibly, you know, leave a message for Bob Harlan? Because I, I, I just like to get Kevin's contact information if that's if that's all right. The receptionist puts me through to Bob Harlan, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which which, you know, he's president of the team. And um I don't think that would happen uh, these days, <laughs> but uh, but no, I mean, I, I talked to Bob and, and he was very, very, uh, very cordial. And he said, yeah, here's Kevin's phone number and give him a call. And um, and so Kevin and I have been friends for, you know, what, 28, 30 years, um, just, you know, staying in touch. And, uh, you know, my path to the NBA took considerably longer than his did. 
Um, but he's, he's been, he's been a great friend. We stay in touch all the time. I've got an open invitation to go to the booth at Lambeau field when he's doing a preseason game for the Packers. And I've done that a couple of times. And, um, one of the great thrills I've had was I was the national sports media association's Tennessee sportscaster of the year in 2017. And that year, Kevin was the national sportscaster of the year. And so he was the guy who handed me the trophy. And that was an incredibly special night, not only to win the award, but that Kevin was there uh, and that we were able to visit. And, and, you know, when when the pictures when the picture was taken, he's the guy handing me the trophy, which uh, which is really, really cool. Are there other broadcasters who have come out of pre-Mantra, if I hope I said that right? Or was it just a. A odd coincidence that two. Gifted broadcasters came out of the same school that close together. Was there something about the program or just a, a weird happening? I think no, I think it was just a couple of guys that were that that really wanted to do it. I mean there 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 are a lot of guys and gals these days who say, Well, you know, I'd love to do play by play. Okay, well, how badly do you want it? Um, I think some will try it, realize that it's a lot harder than it appears um but it was i mean there were there have been other guys who have come through pre and went on to media careers pr- pr- uh, predominantly in green bay but nobody has gone to you know the major leagues or anything like that because i, I th- there were some of us who were very serious about it who said we think this is a career path and then there were a number that did it more more as a hobby uh and just something fun to do you chose to go to Notre Dame, where they didn't at that time have a broadcasting program. Uh, since then, I believe they do. I, I'm sure they do. I've talked to Len Clark, who was part of the the person who put that together. But uh, why did you choose Notre Dame with those goals at that time? Well, you're a young Catholic kid growing up in northern Wisconsin, and you know, as I said, let's let's flash back to the 1970s where there's not a there's not a whole lot of sports content on TV on the, on the three major networks, which is all we had at the time. Um, and I just remember watching the day that Notre Dame ended UCLA's 88 game undefeated streak, and seeing the passion of the student body, seeing the excitement. Um, it, it just seemed like a natural fit. And I wasn't really concerned about, oh, they don't have a sports journalism program or they don't have a journalism program or communications program. Um, I just knew that I'd get a really good education. I knew that there were a number of guys that had gone through Notre Dame and had, despite the fact that it did not have a formalized program at the time, it did have a student radio station. Uh, there were guys like Tim Ryan and Don Crickey that had gone through and had excelled at the network level. Uh, again, despite not having a, a formal program, they, they were able to, to make their way. And so part of the rationale was, look, it's got a student station and I will be able to get reps there. And I was banking pretty much on the alumni network uh, that that might be an assist to get into the business, which ultimately is what got me into the NBA. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I always find it really interesting, a broadcaster's first jobs out of school. And if I read correctly, yours was in a little 
town up in northern Wisconsin, Sturgeon Bay, where you did uh, obituaries and uh, accident reports and probably everything else. Do you have any fun stories of like a weird thing sold on a swap shop or something uh, that you could only experience in small town radio? There was a store up there called Roy's Red Owl, and they sponsored Roy's Red Owl Bingo. And what you would do is you would shop there, and when you checked out, you'd get a bingo card. And every day between 9 and 9.30, I would call bingo. And so I had the the wire uh, bingo cage with all the wooden balls inside, and I'd open up the microphone and hold the cage by the microphone so people could hear that I was actually you know, spinning the cage around. And I would call bingo for half an hour. And Whoever uh, got blackout bingo first got something from Roy's Red Owl. I don't remember what it was, but I, I remember very distinctly, you know, and, and the listening audience was 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 elderly. Uh, and so you wanted to be slow and enunciate carefully. But I had a network show coming up at 930. I had to be out by 930. And uh, so periodically you get a call. You're calling too fast. And I'm looking at the clock. And I'm like, hey, you know, look, I, I, I got to get this game completed. So I hope somebody gets blackout bingo really quickly. That was one odd story. And then one, another one real quickly. I read the school lunch menus. Reading school lunch menus can be kind of dry. Well, today we're having hot dogs and mac and cheese and fruit cocktail. So what I did is I, uh, I put a music bed under it, uh, Linus and Lucy, you know, the theme from Peanuts. And I actually had parent, a parent complain that I added music to it. And I'm like, I'm just trying to make this a little interesting, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that, those are those are the two uh, the two gems of small town radio that I recall. <laughs> that is so small town radio. Just having somebody call in about the music—that's fantastic. Oh. Going forward, though, with our limited time, I want to talk a lot about your NBA path, and we talk about the importance of building relationships and networking. And you mentioned that network that you develop through the Notre Dame alumni program. And that ended up being your first big break, uh, getting a tape to Pistons announcer George Blaha. Uh, explain us the sequence of events that led to that tape getting passed to George and you getting some fill-in work for the Pistons for the first time. Well, uh, after working at WDOR and getting tired of reading school lunch menus, uh, I was uh, like, you know what, maybe, maybe this isn't going to work out. Because um, I'd applied for a number of jobs elsewhere, and and I, at that point in time, I was hit with, well, you did student radio, which doesn't count. Like I've done a hundred games of college basketball. How does this not count? So I ran into a lot of that. Uh, Notre Dame came to me and they said, look, we'll offer you a salary to work in the alumni association. You'll visit our alumni clubs. You'll travel the country, and oh, by the way, you'll get to go to all the football games, including road games. And so I was like, okay, where do I sign? And one of the other duties that I had when I was visiting clubs was to uh, be a quote-unquote celebrity uh, at uh, alumni club golf outings. And so I'm playing golf in uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and a lot of the club presidents knew that, hey, this is what I would like to do going forward. And the president of the club at the time was a fellow by the name of Herb Black. And Herb said, hey, you know, I, I heard that you really want to be an announcer um, – I'm really good friends with George Blaha and maybe you two guys should talk. And I said, okay, cool. And, uh, I called George up and he was, um, you know, his, his guard was up a little bit and he said, you know how many tapes I get from kids? And I'm like, yeah. 
Yes, Mr. Blaha, I know you do. I know you do. I, you know, look, we're both Notre Dame guys. Uh, you don't have, you know, I'm not asking for a job. I'm just asking for, for a critique. And uh, he said, okay, well, you're a Notre Dame guy. So yeah, go ahead and send it to me. So I send it to him and I wait and wait and wait. And I get a call back and he said, um, look, you're better than a lot of guys in the NBA right now. We just need to find you a job. And I was like, oh, you know, hey, that I, I appreciate the compliment, but, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, what can we do about getting me a job? And uh, ultimately, it got to a point where um, when George and I first made connections, he was simulcasting on radio and television. And then the simulcast got split. And then he's doing Michigan State football. And Mark Champion, who was filling in for him, uh, was doing the Detroit Lions. And so there came circumstances in the fall, probably two or three weekends where, you know, the Pistons might've been on the West coast, uh, on a Saturday and George Blaha is in East Lansing and Mark champion is in Detroit calling a Lions game. And so George had given my tape to his boss, Harry Hutt. And Harry said, look, we'll hire the kid. And, uh, you know, for six years, I would do anywhere from one to maybe half a dozen games because at that point in time, um, Mark Champion was doing the Winter Olympics for Westwood One. So that also created some opportunities. So that was the entree to the NBA. And then uh, Harry Hutt had moved on. He was the vice president of broadcasting and marketing for the Pistons. He moved on to uh, Portland. And then ultimately he said, look, I'm, I'm going to bring you out to Portland and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you into the league on, on a full-time basis. And, and ultimately that's what happened. Going to Portland, you switched from radio to TV for, I, mean, the, I doubt it was the first time you did TV, but the first time on a regular basis from what I was able to discover. How big of an adjustment was that to scale back your broadcast when you're so used to doing radio? It was a learning experience. Uh, there's there's no question about it. I actually got a, got a couple of trial runs at it. Um, hid buried in the footnotes of HDTV is that my first year in Portland, I wrote the game notes for PR. I did a little sideline reporting, uh, also did radio prehab and post, but this was, this was before HDTV. We're talking, this is 19, the 1998-99 lockout season. And, um, Paul Allen was heavily invested in HDTV and he wanted to see what would an HDTV, uh, telecast look like and they couldn't at that time they couldn't marry standard definition and high definition and so they had to create a totally separate telecast and so harry hutt said look you and larry Steele, uh you know we're going to do our standard definition telecast is going to go out on you know our regular outlets but we're going to do a closed circuit hd tv telecast and we're going to beam it up to paul allen in seattle and see what he thinks about what this HD TV really looks like. And so I did have a couple of opportunities before I was doing it, you know, quote unquote for real on a, on a regular basis. But yeah, it, it, it was an adjustment because sometimes I laid out too much. Um, sometimes I didn't lay out enough and I had, I was very, very fortunate that I had, uh, I called him the Dean because he was the Dean of NBA directors at the time, George Wash uh, who worked with a million people and basically invented a lot of the things we see on TV today, like the score bug and the things that, that slide out of the score bug. And also Patricia Lowry, who has, who was our producer at the time and has now gone on to be a high level producer at ESPN. And so they worked with me 
to make sure that I was captioning the pictures rather than trying to describe what everybody could already see. And so it, it, it is a definite adjustment. Uh, I've gone and done a handful of games on radio uh, in the preseason, sometimes when our regular radio announcer had some family obligations, um, which I enjoy going back there that way. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a, and the other piece too about doing television is that in radio, you are, you're the show because you are the eyes, the ears, you are everything. And in television, your analyst really needs to be the star. And as a play by play guy on TV, you're the setup man. You're teeing it up so that they can analyze, that they can show really how smart they are and, and, and let them break down the game. And then also too, as, as a television play by play announcer, you are also beholden to what the producer and director put on the screen. So you may see something out of the corner of your eye that you want to talk about, but you're looking at the monitor and well, what you are seeing is not what's on the monitor. If you talk about what's not on the monitor, then, then your audience is totally lost. So uh, those, those are the biggest adjustments, but uh, it's, it's gone pretty well. I mean, I, I've enjoyed it. I, I, you know, growing up, I thought I just want to be the radio voice of somebody. And uh, I, I really didn't choose television. It more or less chose me. And uh, it seems to have worked out okay. Covering those Trailblazers teams goes back to a theory that, uh, I don't know if it's a theory, but a thought that I have that play-by-play people, when you're the voice of a team, there's some journalistic aspects, but you're not really a journalist. You're a team employee. And you had uh, some players get into legal trouble and some scandals, and uh, a lot of stuff happened around those teams. How did you balance keeping your credibility and not being overly homerish and including those aspects of the team and the character of the team in the broadcast? Oh, uh, I could talk about this for a really long time. Um, well, there, there are a couple of things. Let's, let's analyze. Let's, first, let's break down being a team employee. Um, you are really at the behest of management as to how you handle things. Portland wanted a very Homer-centric telecast. They really, really wanted you to be very pro-Portland and, you know, even to the point of criticizing officiating. That was that was what they wanted. Um, you know, so you were kind of trying to walk that line where, like, well, no, I need, I need to be honest, um, but I'm kind of marketing to the Portland – fans and so how you know how do i handle this and there were some times where i was told look you're not you're not enough of a homer and then uh i remember i was working with the late great steve jones at the time and and snapper was working for nbc and he had had the opportunity to work with mike breen and uh one day snapper says you know i was talking with mike breen and breen says you're really good except you're too much of a homer well i'm trying not to be but this is this is what the organization wants um but that's really changed because in those days, uh, your telecast went to your local audience, and that was pretty much it. Well, now you have NBA League Pass, you have NBA International, um, and uh, as we are very much aware, the referees listen to everything that we say. And so it's become even more incumbent, and I'm very grateful to the Grizzlies organization that they have let me and Brevin uh, – be as be very journalistic, uh, be, be very um, be full of integrity in a journalistic sense. That and and that's one of the things that I take as a great compliment when I have a referee tell me, 
you know, you guys, you guys call it down the middle. You're, you're honest and you're not trying to make us look bad and you're not trying to unduly make us look good. Um, and so, so that's a sea change in our business that a lot of people probably really don't talk about. The fact that our, our telecasts are more widely available, that we do need to be a little bit more down the middle than, than maybe some organizations would, would you like, would like you to be. As far as the, the trailblazers in particular, uh, we would talk with our PR staff. Uh, I remember on at least one occasion meeting with Bob Whitsett, who was the team president and general manager after a couple of guys had been arrested for marijuana possession. And it's like, how are we, how are we going to handle this? And so I would come on the air and say, welcome to Blazers basketball. And before we talk about basketball, player X, player Y, they have been arrested for marijuana possession. They've been suspended by the team, uh, you know, and we'll let the legal process play out. Now, on to basketball. And, and you, would, you would try to separate the two because the two guys who were arrested, two guys have been suspended or, or whatever it was, they're not going to play. Once the ball goes up, I don't really want to focus on who's not there and the reason that they're not there. Injuries may be a little bit, but you just didn't want to bring that, you know, those legal issues and behavioral issues into the telecast. We're between the lines now. Let's play the game. Uh, let's describe the game. Let's entertain. Let's inform and, uh, and see how the 48 minutes turns out. Was there ever a time, any time in your career, not just with Portland, where management came down with a, hey, we want the broadcast to be this way, and you disagreed enough that you pushed back and maybe said, no, I, I think you're wrong. And, and how did that go if it happened? Uh, you know, it, it really didn't. Uh, it certainly hasn't happened here in Memphis. Um, in, in Portland, it was, you know, because Harry Hutt was my guardian angel in the business. I owe my career to him taking a chance on somebody that nobody had ever heard of uh, to to be the voice of an ch- NBA championship contender to work with Steve Snapper Jones. I mean, you know, come on, this, this doesn't really happen. Um, so I was like, you know, I, I take, I take the criticism. Um, I, I didn't verbally push back. I did what I thought was right. So there would be a little bit of homerism. I would let slip in. And sometimes I listen to, tapes from from portland and i'm a little embarrassed by how homeristic i was but it was also bounced by the fact that steve jones was anything but a homer and he was and he was he would be critical of the blazers and so we kind of played a little bit of good cop bad cop and i think that that uh, that settled in with management and, and and they were fine with it so what led to moving on from what sounded like a pretty good situation in portland and moving to memphis uh one of the one of the worst situations you could possibly imagine. Uh, you know, Blazers lose in the playoffs. Paul Allen is losing a hundred million dollars a year. Uh, it's two thousand and three. My contract is up. We've heard rumors that they were going to pare back the staff because of the tremendous financial losses that that the team was suffering. And I had been told uh, in the spring of of two thousand and three, uh, my agent was told, hey, we love Pete. Of course, he's going to come back for another year. Uh, we'll get the contract done. Don't worry about it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we get to July, and there's an all-staff email that everybody must go and set up a meeting with their immediate supervisor uh, at the Rose Garden. So I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll go in. And and uh, a fellow by the name of Dick Vardonaga was in charge of Blazer Broadcasting, and 
so he was my direct report. And so I go in and I sit down and he closes the door and he starts reading from a script. And he said, uh, this is to inform you, your position has been eliminated. I'm like, excuse me? Um, and uh, I and 87 other people were let go on, on one day uh, in July of 2003. And uh, at that point, you know, there, there weren't any other jobs that were available to me. Uh, so I was, I was out of a job and I moved back to Chicago. And, uh, before I had, uh, gone to Portland, I was working for a travel business as a writer and a marketing, uh, person, uh, for a travel company in Chicago. That company took me back and, uh, I, I was there for a year. And while I was there, I got an offer from NBC to go do the Athens Olympics in the summer of 2004. And, um, but I wanted to get into the NBA on a full-time basis. And, uh, you know, while I was preparing to go to Athens, there were three jobs available, one of which was, uh, the Grizzlies radio job. And, uh, my agent said, look, you, you're applying for this job. I think you're a really, really strong candidate. I know the director of broadcasting in Memphis. I've worked with him before, but I really think that, because you'll be in Athens, out of sight, out of mind, before you get on the plane to go to Athens, I'm going to tell I, I think you just need to call the, the director of broadcasting with the Grizzlies. You need to call him and say, I am flying to Memphis on my own dime because I want to talk to you about this job. Best piece of advice I ever got from my agent. And uh, so I cashed in some frequent flyer miles, and I said, look, uh, I've applied for this job, and I want to sit down. I want to have lunch with you, and, and let's talk about it because I'm going to go to Athens probably when you're going to be making a decision. And I, I want to make sure that we get some FaceTime. And he agreed and we sat down and, and had lunch. And um, I went to Athens and was doing team handball and judo. And the, the postscript to this is my employers in Chicago, I had said, look, I will take a month without pay. I, I need to do this. This is NBC asking me to do the Olympics in Athens. And they refused. They refused to give me the time off. And um, it was one of those leap and the net will appear. And I, I quit my job in Chicago before I went before I went to Athens. I went to Athens knowing that I was going to work three weeks for NBC. And then after that, I didn't have a job. And uh, I remember it was about 6 a.m. Um, one morning in Athens. And um, my wife at the time called the hotel and said, I just wanted to let you know that uh, Maury, my agent, uh, called last night that the Grizzlies are offering you the radio job. And uh, so that was – so I found out in Athens that, thank God, after I was coming back from Athens, I would have a job going forward. Started out as the radio job for the 50 televised games uh, for the Grizzlies. And then uh, in the middle of that first year, Don Poyer, who was doing both radio and television, uh, passed away and then – I've been the television voice ever since. How difficult was it to step into the shoes of Don Poyer after he passed away? He was a beloved broadcaster in the market. Uh, what was that experience like? Well, it was, it was very hard. I mean, Don and I had kind of an unusual history because um, when I was living in Chicago and I wanted to get into the NBA on a full-time basis, and we talked about Harry Hutt and Harry saying, I'm going to get you into the league on a full-time basis when I'm out here in Portland. Well, 
he hadn't quite figured that out yet. But one night I'm having dinner in Chicago and I get a phone call and he says, can you get to Portland tomorrow for a game tomorrow night? Like, what are you talking about? And so, well, Vancouver is here and they're doing a rate. They're not doing television. They're only doing radio. And Don Poyer has lost his voice. They don't have a backup. But if you can fly, if you can fly out here uh, and make it in time for the game, you can call Vancouver Grizzlies radio. So I, uh, I found the very last flight uh, on Southwest that stopped in Kansas City, Los Angeles, Oakland, and finally Portland. And I didn't change planes, interestingly enough. Um, and I think I got to Portland probably like, you know, three in the afternoon and did what little prep that I could, uh, you know, given the circumstances. And because this would be like 1997, I think. And um, so I go to the arena. And I sit down, I'm working with Jay Triano, who was the color analyst at the time. And Don, even though he didn't have a voice, insisted on sitting at the table and insisted on coming back from every break and introducing me to the audience uh, as to why he wasn't doing the game. And I was. Now, of course, Don has no voice. And it, it, it's, it's barely a croak. And Don, bless his heart, uh, mispronounced my name every single time. And so it was just, it was kind of one of these wacky things. So, you know, I go and I do the game and I, you know, I fly back to fly back to Chicago and then uh, obviously get the job with the Blazers. And so every time the Grizzlies and Blazers would play, Don and I would have a, have a good laugh about that night. And when the Grizzlies were trying to decide who they were going to hire, um, Don was asked, Hey, we've got this guy, this guy, this guy, and Pete Pranica. What do you think? And Don said, look, you, you can do whatever you want. You're the vice president of broadcasting. But I remember the night that Pete came out and did that game. Uh, I think he's a really good broadcaster. I think he's a really good person. And I, I just keep going back to that night in Portland where I didn't have a voice. And, and he filled in for me. And ultimately, I got the job in, in Memphis. It was very hard. I was among the group of people along with our athletic trainer and PR director who – came upon Don in his hotel room after, after he had passed. And that day in Denver was, was to be a radio only game. And so Don was going to do it. I was not prepared to do a game. And uh, in short order, I had to get ready to do a game against the Denver Nuggets that night. The pregame show was a half hour tribute to Don. And we were supposed to play back to back with Utah. And that game was going to be on TV. So, um, and I remember, you know, you're just in kind of a fog. We do the game. We get blown out by Denver. And I hadn't heard the, hadn't heard the news from our travel manager. And I get on the team bus and it's going back to the hotel. I'm like, why are we going back to the hotel? Well, Denver was fogged in or Utah was fogged in one of the places, you know, we, we couldn't get out. And so we go back to the same hotel where all this tragedy had transpired in the morning. And it was a very, very difficult situation for all of us because Don, Don is, was, is one of the classiest, nicest people you could ever, ever want to be around. And his legacy was to never be a stranger to anybody. He knew the ushers, you know, he knew the season ticket holders. And so that was something that I always tried to be like Don, get to know who the ushers are, get to know about their family, say hello to them, you know, be as kind as you can be to everybody you possibly can. Cause that was, that was what Don did. And uh, I'm still in touch with with Don's widow, Barbara, um, you know, and, and we run a scholarship fund in his memory. So, uh, you know, Don, Don has been a, a big influence, 
more than anything else as far as the quality of person that, that he was. We are running out of time a little bit, and there's one story I found in my research that I really wanted to get to. So I'm going to ask you this one now. Tell the story of finding family in Poland through an NBA game. Okay. Uh, a couple years ago, I get an instant message from Facebook from a young woman named Victoria, and she says, I think we're related. And I'm like, okay, is this a Russian bot? I mean, you know, what, what what's going on here? And um, long story short, she said, well, we have this marriage certificate for Stanley Pranitsa and Catherine Covell in St. John Kansas Church in Chicago. And I was like, my God, that's that's my grandfather. And um, and then Victoria sends me a, a passport photo of her grandfather, and he looks like I will probably look in 10 or 15 years. And it's like, okay, so we're, we're related. Um, and it all came about because one of our games was shown in Poland, and Victoria's uncle saw my face, saw my name, and said, oh, my God, we have a relative in, in Memphis that we didn't know about. And uh, so we were able to, to unravel a lot of family history. There were three sons who, uh, born in Poland, came to the United States. Uh, the elder, the eldest, was already married to a Polish girl. He went back to Poland. Uh, one of the brothers settled in Chicago, started a grocery store. The youngest brother settled in northern Wisconsin and started a farm. And that was my grandfather. So um, went to Chicago and visited with the branch of the family that now lives in Chicago. And then a couple of summers ago, went to Poland and met the Polish branch of the family. And in fact, the summer of 2020, Victoria's grandfather and grandmother were to celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. We were to be there uh, in, uh, in the highlands of Poland to celebrate their 50th anniversary with them in the summer of 2020. However, dot, 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 COVID happened. And so uh, we weren't able to make that trip uh, this summer, but uh, I'm sure there'll be another trip to Poland somewhere Somewhere down the line, but again, it was it was all because uh, one of our games was shown in Poland, and uh, I, I got to know family, and they got to know a, a branch of the family they didn't know existed. So it was a discovery on both sides. How did you come up with your taglines? The main one, the hammer nail coffin, this baby is over, uh, is the one that I know about that you're particularly known for being in Minnesota. Uh, so not being the most familiar with your work, but how did you come up with your tagline, and what are your thoughts in general on using taglines and in what situations they work? Uh, I really wish I really wish I had a good origin story, but I, I don't. Um, I, I, I go back, there's, there's a line in Don Quixote where Sancho Panza says whether that hammer meets the pitcher or the pitcher meets the hammer, it's going to be bad for the pitcher. And I just thought that was kind of, I thought that was kind of a cool line. And I started out hammer meet nail meet coffin. And it just, it just got to be really, really wordy. And this is one of the values of social media. I, I think I used it a couple of times and people are like, Hey, that's really cool. And so nobody, uh, you know, advocated against it. People seem to like it. It's like, well, you know, if the audience like it, likes it, I'll, I'll, I'll keep going with it. And, uh, you know, so that, that was really the reason that's kept in. As far as catchphrases are concerned, they, they have to be organic. Because if, if you sit down and like, well, I'm going to write this out, I'm going to write this out, I'm going to write this out, I, it, it, just, it just doesn't come off. To me, it really doesn't come off. And, uh, you know, so like I said, that was organic. I, I, 
like I said, I wish I had a good origin story. I wish my memory was good enough. I'd remember the first time I used it. But the fact, the, the fact of the matter is I don't. Have you ever said it too early and had the team come back? How do you decide when the right time to use something like that is? I am very, very conservative. I have never, never said it too early. There have been times where I'm glad, like, oh, you know what? I didn't count the number of possessions properly because this, this could get out of hand. Um, no, I, I never have. And in fact, <laughs> in fact, I'm so conservative about it that there are times where Brevin will grab a sheet of paper and with a Sharpie write HNC and shove it in front of me when, you know, we're up 10 in the final minute. And like, eh, I'm not sure just yet. I don't, you know, you never, you never want to blow it. Um, and, and, uh, there will be like, Hey, would you say it already? Would you say it already? And I like to do it on, on an explosive play. You know, there's a dunk that puts the Grizzlies up 10 with a minute to play. Okay. That's a hammer nail coffin moment. If it's just a turnover or just something garden variety to just, you know, throw it out there, it's like, well, you know, you'd like to have something to really punctuate the call. If anybody wanted to reach out to you, what would the best way to do so be? Uh, direct messages. My DMs on Twitter are open. And at Pete Pranica is the, uh, is the Twitter handle, and my DMs are open. You've mentioned that a lot of people mispronounce your name. Reading it, it looks pretty straightforward. What are the weirdest ways that people have done so? Well, it, one of the most common typos is to spell my name, P-R-A-N-C-I-A. So I get a lot of prancia, uh, and that's, that's simply because probably because it, it's mistyped. You get a lot of pranica. Uh, a lot of people think that it's an Italian name. It is not. Um, it's actually an anglicized version. The proper Polish pronunciation of my name is pranica. And I just, I just didn't think that, you know, growing up as a kid, like trying to explain that to everybody, like, you know what? I'll just go with the anglicized version. We'll go, we'll go with Pranica. And, uh, and I, I've stayed with it ever since. But when I do meet with my Polish family, then we're all Pranitsas. Interesting. So you actually did that for your career, not so much, uh, that's not, it didn't get changed at Ellis Island or anything like that. No, it didn't get changed at Ellis Island. It's, it's the correct spelling and, and correct pronunciation. Now, just in grade school, just trying to explain it to teachers. And uh, the, what I did change professionally was to drop Peter. Uh, my my mom loved the name Peter Pranitza, and I just didn't think that it, it sounded really good for a sportscaster. I think Pete Pranica sounds a lot better. So that and, and dropping the R uh, was the only thing that I did really for for professional reasons. And although my mother till her dying day always called me Peter. All right. Well, you have a hard out. We're going to let you go. Once again, we are visiting with Pete Pranica, not Pranica. The, the TV voice of the Memphis Grizzlies. And Pete, thanks so much for joining us on the Say the Damn Score podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. Please follow me on your favorite social media outlet, And remember, Apple Podcast Reviews, emails, social media, or any other kind of feedback is always greatly appreciated and helps me know if I'm doing a good job with the show or not. Finally, please reach out to the guests of the show and let them know that you appreciate them sharing their stories on this podcast. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.